Welcome to Diplomacy, the podcast for communications in mergers and acquisitions, brought to you by Corporate Diplomat. With our guests, we will discuss how the financial, economic, political and social context can actually impact the value created by a transaction. My name is Louis de Schallemer and I will be your host. So, Peter, welcome to Diplomacy. We have a quite interesting opportunity to have you on board today. Peter Fogel, you are a professor for family business and entrepreneurship. You are the chair of the DeBio Farm Chair for Family Philanthropy and director of the IMD Globally Family Business Center. So tell us a little bit more about what had and has made the man that you are today. Well, first of all, thank you very much, Louis, for, for having me and for having invited me to this podcast. Yeah, it's a great pleasure to join you. As you explained, I, I run the Family Business Center at IMD. And as in that role, I'm responsible for the different programs, the, the teaching activities, the advisory activities, the research activities that we do. Having joined IMD three years ago, well, three and a half years ago by now, before that, I mean, family business and entrepreneurship are the two domains that, that kind of characterize a little bit what keeps me occupied on a daily basis. The entrepreneurship side, primarily having been an entrepreneur myself and uh, companies in the past, tech companies primarily, that's that aspect. And, and actually then the bridge over into the world of family business slash family office came actually more serendipitously when different dots connected at various events. And, and my work on next-gen entrepreneurship actually triggered the interest of the family business, family office community, because also among the family business and family offices, the next generation of the families have a growing interest in the domain of entrepreneurship and investing. So I actually started working across the bridge. And uh, yeah, so here I am and, and actually still work very much at the intersection of the two with family businesses, with family offices, impact investors, philanthropists, but also with startups and entrepreneurs. In the work that you do, you support boards and, and top management throughout major transformations. When we talk about mergers and acquisitions, that usually, okay, sometimes there's smaller things, but usually M&A transactions imply a major transformation. How do you address in your work such major transformations? What are your tools and, and the leverages that, that you play? Well, I think transformation is a big word. It's a word that we use a lot in, in the work that we do at IMD in general and in the family enterprise space more specifically. Now, uh, of course, there can be very specific corporate transformations that are happening, M&A being one of them, but you know, there are so many different types of transformations that can happen culturally. It can be geographic transformations. It can be digital transformation. It can be other types of things, business model transformations. But of course, it can also be organizations merging. In a family business context, I think there are certain additional complexities when it comes to transformation because we see you know, oftentimes generational transitions that actually implicate also sometimes different types of transformations when it comes to governance, when it comes to leadership and strategy, when it comes to focusing or refocusing certain types of activities, markets, geographies, product lines or service lines. 
So with these generational transformations or transitions, we oftentimes see a fundamental reshift or shift and rethinking of how the business wants to position itself. And that, and that can sometimes also then be triggered. And of course, there are many, many examples from the past where as a result of a generational transition, then the next generation decides to sell off the company or find outside investors, be less implicated on a day-to-day -day business, get professional management on board or investments, private equity. So I think the family enterprise context is, is full of transformations. And the work that we do indeed happens on the different levels. We, we work on the family and ownership level, of course, uh, helping them go through transformations that happen on their side, ownership transformations, generational transformations or transitions. And then what does that mean on an organizational level from board level and a corporate governance point of view, but also from a top management team and leadership and strategy point of view. So, so I think the work that we do is, uh, I find it extremely fascinating because of this interconnectivity between the different levels in the family enterprise system. And, and indeed, that keeps us pretty busy. And, and, and these are, of course, multi-year type of transformations that, that we work on. In one of the papers you mentioned, or you said, maybe you don't remember, so I'm quoting on a paper that you may not remember, but I hope you do. So one of the papers you said that you address change on a holistic and on an integrative way. Can you elaborate on that? What does, what does that mean? Yeah, it, it, it links exactly to, to that point that, you know, oftentimes when, when we look at transformation or when When we talk about working with top management teams or boards, you might be looking at only the board and what needs to happen on the board level to become a world-class board or what needs to happen at the C-suite to become a world-class top management team. Or when we talk about developing the top 100 to top 200 leaders in a company, we look at that level. What we find exciting is exactly trying to connect the levels from the family ownership side. What is our family and ownership vision and strategy? How does that cascade into the organization from a corporate governance point of view? And what are the board kind of directions that need to happen in alignment with the ownership level? And then how does that cascade into the organization? So with holistic and integrative, we look at these different layers And uh, that is now a very corporate point of view. If we now switch from the business point of view more to the family aspect, then we can look at, at it even more holistic because we can look at then, of course, the family dimension. We can look at the ownership dimension, the business dimension and how they are implicated in the business. Investment decisions may be through a family office or privately, but then also the entire social impact kind of side and philanthropy that families are involved. So, so we, again, look at entire systems in large, complex families that, that are maybe a bit detached from the operating company, or maybe they don't even have one anymore because they sold it off. We take a bit more of the lens of the family. We look at the enterprising family. If it is still an operating company, which can be uh, an SME, for example. We work a lot with mid-sized family firms in the one, two, three, four billion revenue range that are still very family-led. There we take a bit more of the family-in-business perspective. So I think it, there are these two types of lenses that, that we take in our work, very large dynastic families that are more detached from the business from an operational point of view 
we take more the family lens. You just mentioned the opportunity to sell a family business. Is that still taboo? Very often what we see in, in mergers and acquisitions is that, okay, you celebrate always the buyer and they do something great. But if some, somebody buys, somebody else has to sell. <laughs> and maybe sometimes it's smart to sell. How do you address a family business or a family that decides that it is time to exit? Well, I, I think it's interesting, right? Because I mean, having come from the world of entrepreneurship, in the tech entrepreneurship space, you know, the entire narrative is geared towards scaling up and exiting very quickly. Where actually then I brought in the narrative more of, have you ever thought about succession as an exit plan from a startup point of view? Then I moved into the world of family business and it takes exactly the opposite, right? Because oftentimes indeed families are holding on to their family business for tradition, legacy reasons, cultural reasons, maybe pressure from previous generations, Or if you're the third, fourth, fifth generation, you have, I don't know, 50, 60 cousins, and you're the one who is the CEO of the family business. And maybe you say, you think it would be a good moment to sell, but there's a lot of cultural pressure from within the family, kind of like, oh, you know, what are you doing to our family? So I think there are a lot of pressure points in a family system and, and diverging interests also. You have a lot of traditionalists, you have some that maybe think a bit more avant-garde. Now, by shifting the lens from a family business to a family in business mm -hmm. and focusing on the family, I think you can change the narrative. And that is a little bit the narrative that we propagate and, and suggest in the work that we do that we say, look, I mean, businesses, unless you're in a niche that, that you can protect for centuries, companies are born and companies die. That's a very natural life cycle of industries And yes, you can try to defend your business by all means and say, this is my castle and I will defend it no matter what comes. Or you could say, look, I mean, there might be a very opportune moment, moment to, to sell this and then go into something new, maybe more exciting that also the next generation is more excited about and identifies more with. And, and I think it should be okay to talk about that in a way that it's not a failure to sell a company at an opportune moment. Now, that said, of course, that the challenge in a family firm is the emotionality. You are emotionally connected to the business because you were brought up in that way. It's, it's your legacy, it's your business, and by all means, we will protect it. So I think it's a situational aspect, but there's an easy test that, that I tend to ask next generation members. It's a bit like the lachmos test. Yeah? So it's when, when, we, when we're in the middle of a succession, right? And we go, through, and succession means leadership succession and or ownership succession. But in the ownership succession aspect, you know, you know, take an SME or whatever, take a company that is valued at a hundred million, right? And, and you have two next gens, then conceptually, theoretically, on paper, each of them would inherit the, the equivalent value of 50 million on paper. And then you need to find a buyer who's willing to pay it, but different story. But, but on paper, no? Then, you know, you need to ask them, look, I mean, if I give you 50 million cash today, do you think that your family business is the best investment with that 50 million? Are you convinced? Is there a competitive edge in the business? Do you think that for the next five to 10 years or longer, you still have something that competitors don't have? And if you cannot really convincingly 
defend that point of view from a strategic perspective, and you are maybe at a peak of evaluation, then maybe selling might not be the stupidest idea ever. Because then maybe in 10 years from now, you might regret not having done it. That said, we're not pushing families to sell, but we're also not telling them by all means, you should not consider selling because it is equivalent to failing as a family. Because that's the wrong narrative, I think. I think by putting the spotlight and the focus on the family in business, it can mean that with new generations, new businesses pop up. I think one family that very strongly and vividly lives that mantra is, is the Mullier family in France that, that actually very actively promotes and supports entrepreneurialism in the family and creating new companies saying, well, maybe one of these companies will end up being the new uh, cash cow of the family in 20 years from now. Who knows? Let's not put all eggs in one basket. So anyway, so, so that's a little bit uh, a very long answer to, to your question. What is the role then for, for leadership, be it non-family or family leadership? How do you see in this transformational process, in this change, continued change process, what is, what is the role or where does, does, does leadership and the quality of leadership play? I think leadership essentially plays a, a critical role in, in, in every moment of the life of a business, right? I think you always need good leaders, if family or not. Of course, in the moments of a transformation, it might be even you might need a very specific profile of a leader that that also is is able to see the vision beyond the transformation, to see the big picture and the purpose behind the greater thing, right? Uh, so, so you might need a very specific type of leader to successfully navigate through through any type of transformation. If it's the digitalization, I mean, digital transformation, I think, is a great example because. You know, you, you can see how certain companies have embraced digital transformation very early on in the process and where the leaders oftentimes in a, in a very forward thinking way, in a very entrepreneurial way said, we need to do this. Otherwise, we will not be out of business at some point in time. And others who said, oh, no, we're not going to change our business model. We're not going to change our supply chain. We're not going to change how we deliver value to the customers, our channels, etc." And who now, I mean, if you just reflect on the last 12 months or 14 months, COVID crisis, I think, you know, this has been a test of how advanced or entrepreneurial and, and forward thinking businesses have been from a digital point of view. And those who have been very proactive, think about retail, about digital distribution channels, etc. they were clearly the winners in this and others were the losers. Mm. And we're trying to catch up very quickly. Uh, I mean, retail is just one example. But so, so again, I think you always need visionary. Uh, I mean, you, you might know the VUCA terminology. VUCA was, is a terminology coined by the military to describe battlefield situations, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. It's, I think it's a heavily overused statement, especially kind of in the consulting and executive education space to say, you know, we live in a VUCA world, so everything is so difficult. I, I like to look at VUCA more from a positive twist rather than, oh, the world is so complex and we're lost leaders. I always like to rather look at it positively, right? Where, where VUCA would stand for uh, visionary uh, with a good understanding 
of where the world is going and having clarity in how you communicate it and agility to execute your strategies and your vision. So, so being a visionary leader with good understanding of where the world is going, clarity and explaining where you would like to take your organization and being agile and responsive and quick at changing your business model and, and things, being adaptable. You, know, you can say agile or adaptable for the A. That, that's how I look at it. And I think, honestly, in, 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 in any transformation, you would want a VUCA leader. And I think the COVID crisis has, has clearly separated organizations that, that have these VUCA leaders from organizations that don't. In a transformation, when you go through that process, as you just described, particularly with good communications, as you said, to, to bring out the vision and to translate it, how do you engage with stakeholders? As you know, be it in family business or in non-family businesses, you do have a multitude of, of stakeholders, different layers, different influencers and less influencers, early adapters. Well, you know, all of those different categories that we see. What is your experience there? And how do you see that play or this, this stakeholder engagement play also in, in the transformation and in, in the merger and acquisition if there, if there were to be one? Well, I mean, I think overall, you know, if, if, if you have a clear vision and a clear plan, I think uh, then the next logical thing is to communicate this plan, right? I mean, having a great plan in your head alone doesn't, doesn't help. I mean, you need, to, you need to onboard, right? And I think when you look at some of the great leaders, you, you of course need to gather your, your fan base and, and, and kind of your inner circle, but then make sure that the message is spread and you need to create excitement. It's a storytelling, it's a narrative aspect, honestly. And whether that's a family business, you need to gather the crowds and, and say, you know, let's go in this direction. Of course, yeah, I, I think ultimately it all boils down to communication and how you communicate. But of course, if you don't have a convincing plan, then you can communicate all you want. I think you need to have the vision, you need to have a good understanding, and then you need to be able to communicate that, but then also execute and, and show and I think transparency is essential uh, in all of this. Transparency, celebrating victories, but also reflecting in a humble way on failures and, and communicating that and say, look, you know, we thought this would work. It didn't. But then being agile and adaptive and changing quickly and say, look, we made a mistake. We pivoted. We changed course. We believe that this course is the right one now. So, so I think communication, transparency, being humble, in how to interact, but then also being engaging, right? That, 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 that the different stakeholder groups say, you know, oh, we follow this leader, but you know, whether it's business or, or, or not, I mean, I think that, that, that could equally qualify to politicians in big political crises, right? I mean, you know, I don't want to talk too much about the last 14 months, but I mean, you can clearly see which politicians have been, let's say, uh, better at, 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 at gathering and mo mobilizing different stakeholder groups through the crisis and others were not so. Do you see a difference or do you expect that that world or the way to engage and the way to communicate will be very much different in the post-COVID period? You know, we have learned now to, to work digitally. We um, usually would do a town hall. We would usually call in all of our members. We would do a press conference. That's all of the stuff that we did before. Today, we have Zoom groups. 
we have breakout groups digitally, we have digital cocktails. How do you see the, this, this engagement process and the decision-making process after? Well, I mean, I think one of the advantages of the crisis is clearly that, that the world has accepted that digital means of communication work for many things, not for everything, but for many things. And, and one of the things is definitely to, to be in touch more in real time. I think one of the advantages can clearly be that the world accepts that this is a means of communication. You don't necessarily have to book a trip somewhere and gather 500 shareholders from a family once a year. I mean, you know, to go to a family business context now, you know, you have a general assembly once a year, you have a family gathering once a year, which is a logistical nightmare for dynastic families, for example. Now, how easy, because they're scattered all over the world, they're busy with their stuff. And of course, digital has an advantage. You can inform in real time. You can engage in real time. You can say, hey, look, things have evolved. Things have changed. We would like to jump on a quick Zoom call. If you cannot make it, we'll record it and share it in a, in a password-protected, safe environment so you can look at it afterwards. All of these things were unimaginable mm. uh, pre-COVID because... You know, over the last couple of months, I've, I've participated in a number of, of family gatherings virtually where you had 100, 200, 300 family members from one family virtually in a room where, of course, historically, from a protection point of view, uh, you know, especially more senior generations are, are maybe more critical when it comes to the security of, of the digital context. Of course, cybersecurity is a big issue. And can these rooms be hacked? Do they then get insider information? All of that is, is it is a concern, and it's a growing concern. But but I think by now we start to realize that that safe digital environments are possible, but you need to invest in them. So I think real time stakeholder engagement, not just through press releases, etc., but through these gatherings, especially in the shareholder family business kind of context, I think that's very exciting. Right? You don't have to necessarily gather like uh, the 500 shareholders once a year, but you can do it once a quarter now. You just mentioned, and probably I'm asking here the professor of, of family business and entrepreneurship, do family businesses manage the entrepreneurial risk differently? So if we go into, into M&A particularly, do you see um, the approach to risk, to the entrepreneurial risk, any different? Oh, absolutely. I think over time, across generations, families tend to be families as a system tend to become more risk averse. That doesn't mean that you do not have individuals within the family that are very entrepreneurial and, and who come up with new entrepreneurial ideas and either create their own ventures or try to disrupt the family business and come up with new business model ideas and opportunities. And then the question is, is the system ready to accommodate these disruptors. Again, the Mullier family has created an ecosystem for that purpose to, to accommodate entrepreneurs within a very complex system of, of a family. Other dynastic families are large, complex, rigid structures where you know shifting the needle from a disruption point of view is, is very complex because there's no no ecosystem to foster disruptive thinking. So, so yes, I think over time, families do tend to become more risk averse in a certain way. And then it's very important from a governance point of view, from a leadership succession point of view, either uh, you groom, because you need disruption, you need 
what, what we've seen is multi-generational success requires resilience and adaptability. Resilience to, to weather the storm, to weather the crisis, that is financial prudence. We see that family firms on average are less indebted than non-family firms, which, is, which has proven very strong through a crisis. You know, having strong values, emotionally connected owners, long-term thinking, uh, thinking in generations and not in quarters. All of these things are strong points of family firms that help transition through crisis. But then you need the adaptability and the entrepreneurialism. And if the governance and the structure of an organization is not set up to allow disruptors from within the family to rise to the surface and to come up and develop new business opportunities, then over time, because businesses and traditional business models they grow and they disappear again. That, that's just how the world works. Unless you are in, in the hotel or in the business of selling wine, in the business of selling beds, in the business of selling food, in the business of selling religious products, which are, by the way, the, the four areas in which you see the oldest family firms in the world, because these are evergreen industries. People will always need a bed to sleep. People always need something to eat always need something to drink, and religion plays a critical role. We're not talking about a semiconductor industry where a new chip comes out every, every few months, right? So there are these very resilient industries and, and areas, but then in other industries, which is the majority of other industries, you need adaptability, you need entrepreneurial renewal. And, and if you don't have an ecosystem to, to allow entrepreneurs to, to flourish, I think you have an issue. Could that mean that the absence of a risk ecosystem that is able to manage the risk could be a problematic for integration? So if we talk again about integrating a company that you have acquired, is this risk averseness, could that be a potential barrier to integration? Oh, absolutely. I think so. I mean, uh, risk aversion for me is a cultural question also. How do we go about the topic of risk? What is our perspective so, so, you know, I think if we then think broader, I mean, the risk topic is, is a huge topic, but for me, it's a cultural question. When you integrate two companies that have fundamentally different cultures and then risk perception or the way we look at risk for me is a cultural question. Mm -hmm. uh, do, we, do we always take on depth capital to grow and grow and grow? What is our growth strategy? Do we have an organic growth strategy or a very aggressive Debt finance growth strategy. I mean, these are already two, two potentially conflicting ways of doing business. And if you try to merge these two type of firms, for example, one that it has grown very aggressively and is always on the, on the edge of being overly indebted versus one that has a very, very healthy cash basis and is, is growing slowly and organically. I mean, these are fundamentally risk profiles, but, but very different cultures and mindsets of how to run and grow an organization. And I think there's massive risk when merging these two cultures into one and, and, and how to find a blend out of those two. I think this, this can be probably one of the main issues. So how do you hand over then the values, this culture, and I'm making the bridge here to the philanthropy, I'm taking that as the very hot topic here to see how does philanthropy integrate then into those values, into those cultures of entrepreneurial families, and how do you hand that over from generation to generation? 
Yeah, I mean, I think one of the strong points of multi-generational family enterprises is that they have strong values, that they live and follow these values, and that their companies also follow those values. They are clearly communicated and, and employees identify themselves with those value sets, right? So that having strong, clear, transparently communicated, honest values is one of the strong points of any successful company. It's not just a bunch of words on a corporate brochure. It's true, genuine values that people identify with. And this can be a family business or not, right? I think that is the first thing. Having strong, clearly communicable, honest values is, is one thing. Now, when it comes to transmitting values to the next generation, I think there are different ways. I mean, of course, every generation will also make certain twists and tweaks to their value sets and say, what are our values? And it could be that over time, these values also change. And that's okay. But, but, but certain fundamental values are probably ingrained in the DNA of a family. Now, you mentioned philanthropy. Indeed, philanthropy is oftentimes used, whether explicitly or implicitly, by families to onboard the next generation, to transmit values, human capital, social capital, reputational capital of the family. It's a lot more difficult, I think, to do that in a legacy family business because, you know, the children come into the business and they want to change things and do things their way. And that might be uh, sometimes more regarded as an, as, an, as an attack by the senior generation, for example, whereby philanthropy is a bit outside. It's not the core of the family business, right? It's a bit on the side. So, so oftentimes it's easier. Uh, it's a softer topic. Uh, it's not about the survival of the family and the business. It's about where do we want to give our money to? How do we want to do it? Which causes and which regions do we want to support? So by nature of design, it's more emotional and, and it's a softer topic. So it's a, it's a great way for generations to collaborate and, and to find a common ground. And what are our ways of looking at the world and, and transmitting our values into our philanthropic work? So, so I think from that point of view, philanthropy can, if done right, be an incredible platform to, to transmit values across generations. So you, you just have published the latest book, Family Philanthropy Navigator. So I guess that's the handbook with the how to do things. It's really a hands-on opportunity. Yes. I mean, we wrote a book. I mean, I don't know. In my bookshelf, I don't know how many books I have. And the vast majority of them I've never read. Like, I think that's probably how you know, many of us look at books, right? And we, our ambition was not to write another book that ends up being on a bookshelf. We wanted to write a guidebook, a hands-on practical toolkit that is full of activities and exercises and case studies and examples that, that you know, it's kind of a step-by-step -step inspirational guide for families where I mean, they can walk through this on their own. It can be embedded in workshops and activities. So it's quite fun, very visual. We, we took a design-first approach. We, from the beginning, we had a designer. We, we looked at the design even before we, we started writing a single sentence. So we, we decided how we want the book to be built up and visualized and structured, how the framework should be structured. And then we started thinking about content, not the other way around. 
And I think that is what makes this book different, maybe from, from traditional business books. You know, what triggered us to, to do this is that, that we see that philanthropy suffers maybe a bit of a, it has a bit of a dusty, old-fashioned um, kind of view uh, by the world, right? Oh, philanthropy, there's this wealthy family, they make money with their business while polluting and so on in a very traditional way. And then they give back separately in their philanthropy while continuing to do the business. Now, I think the world has moved on and we see much more holistic and collective doing good and doing well strategies that span the business activities, impact investing, other investments and philanthropy and looking at things holistically. How can we as a family have a positive impact through what we do in business and what we do in philanthropy and everything in between impact investing, venture philanthropy, you name it. And, and I think that is what is exciting. We see a modernization of philanthropy. We see philanthropy being inspired by business. So professionalizing strategy, leadership, governance, scrutinizing philanthropy, which also then forces NGOs to be more professional in their reporting to philanthropists. And on the other side, we see businesses inspired through philanthropy and, and a more purpose-driven way of doing business. So that really led us to write the book in, as a toolkit in this new wave of, of philanthropic giving. So I think it's a very exciting time because at the same time we see we're confronted with one of the biggest transfers of wealth. And the next generation will, will be on the receiving end of trillions and trillions of dollars of, of wealth over the next years. And the next gen has certain characteristics also that they want to be seen as stewards and taking care of the planet and society and do good and, and be impact-driven and purpose-driven. We see that in career choices of next gens all over the place. So I think it's a, it's, it's a great opportunity. So, so we had good fun writing it and, and we have great exchanges with families who, who started using it. So um, I already opened your book, so... Um. <laughs> Peter, I like your approach to, to managing the entrepreneurial risk. I think that is something that I will take uh, from this conversation. I liked really your focus on the leadership values and, and the, the vision that needs to be expressed and communicated and transferred. And lastly, I liked your initial approach when we started the conversation around the continuation in the transformational process. So it's not a, it, it, it never stops basically, if I understood you well. So it's, it, you always have to adapt and always rethink the way where you, where you go. What will be your next book? The Family Office Navigator. Yeah, so sneak preview. Yeah, June 22. <laughs> Still a okay. bit too old, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, relevant topic for, for mergers and acquisitions, the family office. So, Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see a lot happening in that space, indeed. I mean, many family offices are, are indeed, I mean, there's heavy concentration of, of wealth and, and families are, are asking themselves, how can we diversify our portfolio? What kind of investments can we make? What kind of companies can we buy? Now, at the same time, I think the last 12 to 14 months have also forced many businesses to rethink and reposition and, and in many cases also sell, whether it's a family business or not, simply because they... they... So I think moment, at the moment we will... Yeah, I think there will be a lot of matchmaking. 
I think there are many uh, acquisition opportunities. Now, not all of them will, will be the next cash cow. I think we've also seen the, the rise and probably fall of the SPACs. And we're also there. You're, there's, there's massive wealth, and, and, but there's also not that many acquisition targets that, that are truly attractive opportunities. I mean, companies sometimes also go out of business because there's a reason for them to go out of business. And, and that's not everything that is up for sale is, is, is good to buy, right? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So I think also many families will burn their fingers heavily in this process. I mean, I think the specs trend will, will, is just the tip of the iceberg uh, and show us this year or, and or next year when many of these periods run out. Uh, yeah, let's see. I mean, I, 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 I hope it won't be too bad for the families, but I think many families have invested in, in such type of vehicles who then end up being very desperate to, to find acquisition targets. And, and, and again, just because something's up for sale doesn't mean it's good. So I think that's, that, that families overall, yeah, maybe last comment, I mean, we, you know, it's the same with the startup ecosystem. I and mean, we see so many family offices or families in general, largely driven by the next gen saying, oh, we want to invest in startups. This is hip, this is cool, and so on. Let's, let's travel to Silicon Valley. Let's go to Israel. Let's go to Berlin. Let's go to London. Let's look at what's new and hot and hip. And uh, unicorns anyway is the greatest thing ever, right? Uh, so let's participate in that. But there's, there's, in my point of view, but you can always argue, I think the valuations are, are very, very high. But I mean, look at cryptos, the valuations are incredibly high, simply because there's so much cash around. Will this continue forever? Who knows? I don't have a crystal ball. But, but I think overall, whether it's investing in SPACs, participating in M&A, whether it's pretending to be a VC and, and being the next big Silicon Valley investor, I think overall families need to be extremely careful how to go about investment decisions and, and that, that, that investment is not something that, that is, is, can be taken uh, lighthandedly, that, that you can necessarily have your son or daughter or niece or nephew just because they find it exciting suddenly be the chief investment officer of the family office. And so I think the, the need to professionalize on, on all ends of the investment spectrum is something that is of critical importance because wealth is growing. Families are, are just sitting on, on tremendous wealth and this needs to be managed very, very carefully. Yes, you will have enough material to write your next book. Yes, <laughs> probably. <laughs> Peter, let me thank you for, for taking the time to join our conversation. Thank you for uh, our discussion, for your thoughts, your input. It was a great pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Diplomacy. Please explore our website www.corporate-diplomat.com or our LinkedIn page. I hope you have enjoyed. Feel free to subscribe and hit the follow button. Have a great day.